This is the Walking Home from the ICU podcast. I'm Kelly Dayton, a nurse practitioner and ICU consultant. I help teams create awake and walking ICUs through evidence-based sedation and mobility practices. By hearing from survivors, clinicians, and researchers, we'll explore how to give ICU patients the best chance to walk out of the ICU and go home to survive and thrive. Welcome to the ICU Revolution. few episodes, we learned about the conditions, treatments, and outcomes experienced during the COVID-19 pandemic in New York. We recognize the dire circumstances in which these heroic providers were relentlessly working and the desperate measures required. I have received many inquiries about the status, care, and outcomes for COVID-19 patients in the awake and walking ICU. Later, I will have my expert colleagues share their approaches to the difficult changes the critical care world faces. Yet as always, we will first address these questions with our why. With us this episode is Dr. Kenneth Hurwitz, one of our first COVID-19 patients with his wife, Beverly, to share with us their journey, care, and outcomes from the awake and walking ICU. Hi, my name is uh, Kenneth Hurwitz. I'm now 70 years old. I'm a retired uh, pediatrician and regenerative medicine doctor. And... Um, in the hospital for 28 days with uh, COVID. And Beverly, can you tell us a little bit about yourself? Hello, I'm Beverly Hurwitz. I am 72 years old. I am also a retired physician, and my initial training was in um, pediatrics, and I had some specialty training in neurology and um, had a varied career thereafter. So tell us a little bit about your COVID journey. <clears throat> well, <clears throat> I uh, contracted COVID somewhere, maybe in an airport, maybe in a restaurant, don't really know. I had gone to a, a wedding in Arizona where there was 150 people about uh, a week or so before I contracted COVID, but nobody at that whole wedding uh, was affected. So I assumed that I <clears throat> contracted it somewhere in the airport coming home from Phoenix. And uh, we, Beverly and I both had the uh, COVID at the same time. So I had about 13 days at home. And my memory of being home with the virus is really vague. I just remember the, uh, the last day when I had to be admitted to the hospital. And that was on the night or the uh, afternoon of March 26th. <clears throat> and then I remember being wheeled into the emergency room, saying hello to one of the nurses, waving. And that's the last I remember. <clears throat> I know I was airlifted to, I don't recall anything um, until um, I think April 11th or April 12th. Even though I had ups and downs in the hospital, I know I was uh, uh, conscious for some of that time period and then sedated and put into a face down position in a coma for eight days. But I don't recall <clears throat> anything during those, during that time. I had lots of different dreams and maybe some of those dreams occurred during that period, 
but I can't be sure. And I know I had a lot of dreams after um, April 11th when I think I woke up and no longer needed to be sedated, heavily sedated or um, put down in the uh, prone position. And I am so fascinated to hear that because we watched you. So you spent a few days um, at the outside hospital um, on nasal cannula. And this is the beginning of the COVID wave when we started intubating everyone that required more than six liters nasal cannula. So as soon as you required more than six liters, you were intubated there and then flown to our hospital. And um, I think you were sedated for transportation. And then once you came to us, we took off the sedation and you woke up and you were, you were pretty with it. You were writing notes on the board, on boards. You were making very specific requests such as um, you wanted atropine drops because your mouth was um, really moist. You wanted albuterol. You knew what you wanted. Um, it was a little bit frustrating because um, you didn't have your phone with you. And I really felt like maybe that would help you be able to talk to Beverly during that time. And this is all just new to us. I mean, having to wear the pappers and being isolated in the room. And yet, during those six first days with us on the ventilator, you were cam negative, meaning you would answer questions very appropriately. You could follow, pay attention. You seemed really with it. Um, you were pretty anxious. And Beverly and I would talk this whole time how this virus seems to be so neurotoxic. Um, and that's something that we're noticing in the critical care world that even when people aren't sedated, they're becoming delirious, their, their brains aren't the same. So what you're saying is that even though you <laughs> were responding so appropriately, you weren't quite yourself and you don't recall. I don't recall that, no. And you were even walking in your room with physical therapy. So, you know, they were just making up as they went because it's so new. Usually we have people walking circles around the, the ICU but that wasn't an option since now we're in negative pressure rooms and in isolation. And so we had you walking to the door, wheeling back, walking to the door, wheeling back. We had you using the arm bike. Um, they took um, stools from the OR because the OR was shut down and you were stepping onto stools. <laughs> and just we were doing whatever we could to keep your brain and your body going. And you were doing really well, except for anxiety we could tell you were so anxious and we wish that Beverly could have been there because I think that would have helped um so that was one of some of our challenges starting with COVID with you but you were doing so well and you were on pretty minimal ventilator settings wow and then after six days um your lungs started getting worse and so we proned you so you were laying on your stomach and that just wasn't comfortable um so we were we started some light sedation, like Presidex and fentanyl. Um, you were still able to help turn. You were still asking questions. You were writing on the board. Um, and the, the interesting thing that I found is a lot of times with ARDS, oxygen, oxygen consumption is such a problem by that point. If someone coughs, they have no reserve, their oxygen plummets. You couldn't be supine or your oxygen would drop and yet you could basically do a push-up in the bed and your oxygen wouldn't drop as long as you were face down so you were helping turn yourself you were doing push-ups 
um, just repositioning yourself, but still the same kind of motion, which I would have expected your oxygen to drop, and yet it didn't. So you were on very light sedation, pretty awake, pretty with it, answering yes or no, cam negative for two days, and then your lungs got even worse. So then we felt like we needed to paralyze you, and so we put you under deep sedation and paralytics for two days. And even after we took off the paralytics, um, when we tried to take off the sedation, at that point, oxygen consumption was a problem. If you moved, your oxygen would drop. So we had to keep you more deeply sedated. So you were sedated for a total of six days, prone for a total of eight days. When your oxygen got better, so every day we were trying to flip you, trying to see if you could be on your back again, you'd be okay for more extended amounts of time. And one day, once we noticed that you really could handle the being, being on your back and we took the sedation completely off and you were okay, it was actually a nurse and a respiratory therapist. I don't think physical therapy was even there. It was our nurse, Patty, who is very dedicated to the mobility, um, big picture care of patients. She said, okay, he's been down long enough. Let's get him up. So after eight days of being on your face, not moving, Patty and a respiratory therapist sat you up. And you was that like April 11th, do you know? Probably. I have pictures on my phone that the nurses took. And that's the only reason I, I would know that date. Um, so that's probably when it was. That's when I, I think I was really beca became conscious. But all those other episodes you were talking about, uh -huh. I don't recall those at all. And that, I'm, I'm happy I don't. I never <laughs> right. <laughs> and that's so interesting because, yeah, a lot of people are able to remember their hospitalization and their time on the ventilator very vividly. But despite our best efforts to keep you clear, you, you still were neurologically affected by the virus. And you said that you were having weird dreams and hallucinations. Can you tell us more about what that was like? <clears throat> well, I had these dreams that <clears throat> actually would carry on, not still dreaming, but the next day when I woke up, they would seem like those events really happened. And for instance, I had a dream about one of our dear friends who um, was trying to make me a better golfer by giving me oxygen, oxygen added with something else. <clears throat> and during this experience of him having me uh, in bed, there was a whole group of other people there <clears throat> and they were actually giving me the COVID virus. That's, that's, what, that's what was happening. <clears throat> and of course I was restrained. I couldn't talk. I couldn't say anything. So it was very, very frustrating. Mm -hmm. And I had these dreams about three times. And the last time I had it, I said, when I wake up, I didn't, I didn't know I was sleeping. So the next day I'm going to tell Beverly to stay away from this individual because he's a fraud and he's a bad person. So I was able to write out on the board, Beverly, please stay away from what's his name. He's a fraud. And it was so real that I couldn't separate dreams from reality. I couldn't separate it. And I had a couple like that where uh, other, other experiences where I couldn't tell if my dream and my real, I couldn't separate reality from my dreams. And so the stress of those, is it those uh, scenarios in your mind 
was just as vivid as if it was actually happening. Yeah, very true. Right. Oh, the extubation dream. Oh, my extubation dream, when I in myself, I was in this medieval battle with uh, guys with shields and clubs, the spike clubs, torches, and I was fighting this guy who had a, a shield on his face, and he had me by the throat. And I ripped his hand off of my throat, and I pulled my tube out. And that's oh. how that occurred. Yeah. You were severely delirious. We, we knew that you were delirious when we first took the sedation off. We were working hard to clear it out. Um, so at first you could only sit at the side of the bed and then physical therapy, even that afternoon was like, let's try standing. And then over the following days, you were starting to stand and walk again in the room, just even just little steps. You were extremely weak, right. but you were extremely delirious too. Huh. And uh, we were worried about that. And so I, we had you restrained and somehow you did you you should be down and, and you got a hold of that too and when they came in um and by that time your lungs were getting better and you really were strong <clears throat> you could clear your secretions you could take your own breaths um so when they came in you said oh i didn't need it anymore oh and you weren't wrong <laughs> we, it made us laugh. We thought, well, he's he's also a physician. He he knew he didn't need it. It's not, it's we didn't realize you were hallucinating, though. It's not fun having a tube in your throat for twenty days or whatever it was. No, no, and I think um, if you hadn't been moving prior to being prone, let's say if you had come in um, to a, maybe a different hospital, different ICU, and you were immediately deeply sedated, those six days that you spent walking and being awake on the ventilator would have been wasting away. You know, right. you would have been losing a lot of muscle and then your lungs got worse. And so we had to prone you and then we had to paralyze and sedate and do all those things, but you would have already started that, that treatment very deconditioned. And then you would have been, um, continued to have been deeply sedated even after you could be supine because that's just what we do when someone's on the ventilator. But fortunately, you were awake, and yes, you did self-extubate. So a lot of the concern in the critical care world is what did they self-extubate? But our question is always, what if they never walk? What if we can't get them off the ventilator? What if they have to be traked because they're so weak? What if they spend an extra 20 days on the ventilator because of the weakness that we maybe could have prevented? And so don't, no worries, but we had almost... We probably had a little over two years of no self-extubations in our unit until you broke the record. Okay, thank you. <laughs> <laughs> but, but it's okay. And I think the circumstances are so hard. I think under normal circumstances, Beverly could have been there. We could have been at the bedside more. There was a lot that contributed to that circumstance. And yet, even with the A to F bundle shows that um, incidences like self-extubations happen just as much, if not more without deep sedation and yet people pass meaning they don't have to be re-intubated so when people are deeply sedated they can still self-extubate but then they're so weak that they're at more risk of having to be re-intubated right. so when you said i don't need it anymore you weren't wrong we just put you on a high flow nasal cannula and you did great so i mean you probably could have died self-excavating yourself if you hadn't been mobilized, if you hadn't been awake and having had spent four days rehabilitating already from being proned. Right. 
And so after those four days, you were right, you self-extivated, you were done with it, we had you on high flow, and yet you were still hallucinating, but you were able to tell us, you were telling the staff about things that you were seeing, you said, I know that Beverly's not in the garbage can, but I see her there. I see a dog, but I know the dog's not there. You were between worlds. How stressful was that for you? Well, I remember seeing like mice. I, I remember seeing, um, always thinking there was somebody else near my bed or in my bed. Um, when I was, uh, I don't know, they might have put betadine for some reason on my right knee and it looked kind of yellow. And in some of my dreams, uh, there were these Asian people, um, along with the our friend who I golf with, who was trying to make me a better golfer. He was he was with these Asian people who were doing this therapy. And when I would look at my knee, it looked like the back of a bald head, and it would like spook me out. Uh, I thought there was a, somebody in my bed at all times. So uh, <clears throat> then I would realize it was my knee. I mean, it didn't persist for a long time, um, but I had these. Um, hallucinations of seeing things flying by, seeing flies, like flies that kind of fluttered that were carrying the virus. I would see them every so often. And black, little black specks I would see. I even asked the nurse, I said, do you see black specks here? Because I, I would see these. And um, I kind of knew that they weren't real because they didn't persist all the time. And um, so I wasn't really that concerned about them. So you knew you were at the hospital by that point. Right. I knew I was in the hospital. I had, I had trouble. Uh, as I, after uh, April 11th, when I think I first, I remember the nurse coming in the room. I opened my eyes and she had this smiley face. She said, good morning, Kenny. And it was light and bright. And I thought it was in it that I woke up. That, that's what I remember. <clears throat> but I didn't have any um, real um, sense of time. I couldn't really separate night and day. That was really confusing to me. I think it was one o'clock in the morning, it was one o'clock in the afternoon, and my sleep cycle was way off. So that was kind of confusing. And I didn't, of course, I didn't know the date. They would ask me what, the, what today is. And I had no reference. I wasn't reading any newspapers. I wasn't watching TV. So I really didn't know what day of the week it was or what the date was. So I was confused in, in, in that aspect. If you've been listening to this podcast, you're likely convinced that sedation and mobility practices in the ICU need to change. The ICU community is facing incredible difficulty with the trauma from the pandemic, staffing crisis, and burnout. We cannot afford to continue practices that result in poor patient outcomes, more time in the ICU, higher healthcare costs, and greater workload for the ICU team. Yet the prospect of changing decades of beliefs, practices, and culture across all disciplines of the ICU is a daunting task. How does this transformation start? It can begin with a consultation with me to discuss your team's current practices, barriers, and to formulate a plan to help your ICU become an awake and walking ICU. I help teams master the ABCDEF bundle through education, consulting, simulation training, and bedside support. Let's work together to move your team into the future of evidence-based ICU care. Click the link in the show notes of this episode to find out more. And as I started moving you more 
you made comments about um, how weak you were and you were frustrated. Do you remember that? What was it like? Yeah, it was very weak. Yeah, what was it like to move again? Well, I knew I had to, but I was a little bit more comfortable, lazy in my bed, but I knew I had to get up. And one of the pictures I have on my phone is being supported, grabbing um, Angela, I think it was, by the waist, and she picked me up and stood me up. And it was very hard for, with my balance and my legs were very weak. And then she had me using like a stationary pedal device, build up my strength. I have pictures and videos of that on my phone. Um, but I knew that was the only way I was getting out of there. So I had to do the PT. I had to uh, <clears throat> force myself to start mobilizing. And I kind of have to preface because you said that you just turned 70. You admitted right. it as a 69 year old. Right. Um, but I have to tell our listeners that you were not a normal 69-year-old. Biologically, you're more in your 50s yeah, well, that's at, at oldest. That should probably save me because I worked out almost every day at the gym when I wasn't doing that. And in uh, addition to that, I was skiing every day, just about every day, golf every day. We hike every day. We're very active. And I had no comorbidities, no diabetes, no hypertension, no heart disease. So I was in good shape. Um, and actually for my birthday, which was uh, a week ago, um, my best birthday present was coming off of oxygen. So I was on oxygen for about four and a half weeks. And that day I was able to greet my neighbors out back. They had a big uh, celebration for me. And I gave a little spiel and uh, didn't need oxygen. Went out in the front of the house. We walked our uh, dog with Beverly and walked up and down the street. And I've only used oxygen in the past for when I was doing my PT. So I wouldn't drop down below 90. And I've been off oxygen now most of the week. Drove down to uh, IHC, actually drove the car. Had my uh, echo done in my heart this week. And I just had a CAT scan. I drove myself to the hospital because Beth couldn't go. And so I'm really pretty functional. And actually yesterday, I played golf. <laughs> wow. What does that mean to you? And just for a little context, we're finding in these overloaded areas that they are um, having a really hard time placing people, meaning they don't know what to do with them after their lungs get better, and yet they're having to be trached, still ventilator dependent, still not waking up, or still delirious, can't hold, pull a finger up. And some of these people are in their 30s, 40s, 50s, you know, they're, they're not just elderly that are weak to begin with. These are people that have been immobilized for at least three weeks. And now the ICUs are kind of stuck with them because there's no way they can get off the ventilator or if they can, there's no way they can go home. And yet here you are as a 69 year old, if you'd been to a different hospital, you would have been sedated for at least three to four weeks and probably then needed to be on a ventilator for even longer. But they're it was wherever they were going to have a bed for him. I really I was just lucky. didn't have that choice. Right. <clears throat> we just were fortunate that that's where he wound up. And you were home. You were golfing. You were with your neighbors. You're walking. You're taking care of yourself. You went home 10 days after being extubated. Right. They wheeled you to the front door. You got yourself into the car. I have a video of you getting yourself out of the wheelchair like, like it's no big deal. You got yourself into the car, shut that door. You all but gave us the finger. I mean, there was no looking back, right? You were no, done do with that. it. <laughs> I love you guys. I mean, I, 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 <laughs> tell, you, I, I, have, I tell everybody I had the most loving, affectionate, professional care 
I mean, I've been a physician a long time. I've worked in the most primitive hospitals. I've been on staff at the most prestigious university hospitals, and I've never witnessed or experienced anything like the, uh, the care that I received was just fantastic. I love everybody there. They, their whole purpose in life was to get me out of there. And that's what got me out of there. It says, Kenny, you're going to do this. You're getting up. You're going to walk. We're getting you out of here. And their uh, ability to get me to do that was what got me through. I mean, I love you guys, really. When you came in such a, a scary time, I think we, this was such a new virus, new isolation. We, we were hearing all these really scary stories about how bad it gets. And then we watched you get that bad. Um, and then we're hearing about 88% mortality rates with people on ventilators. Wow. Yet I watched my team stick to the things that they knew worked. We already had a culture of knowing how to keep people awake and moving and we knew our why. So even when you got so bad and you had to be mobilized and sedated, we still, once we could, we had you back on course to going home. And this isn't a big hospital. It's not a famous hospital. It's a, you know, it's, but it's just a strong team with a strong culture. Um, and what does that mean now to your life you know, <clears throat> over a month or so later to yeah, be well, where you're I, at? I try because I've, I'm so grateful that, that you treated me that way. After, after reading your uh, little blurb about what went on with me, and then I Beverly kept a journal of everything that happened every day and I hadn't read that I, I kind of avoided that until the other day and I read that and I said wow I didn't realize what was going on and how sick I was and um, I'm glad I didn't know when I went into the hospital I think uh, I was under the impression at that time that 97% of the people survive I didn't know that 88% on the ventilator didn't and I'm glad I didn't know that I know I didn't want to get intubated when I left but um, just so grateful that you treated me this way. And I hope you're having the same experience with other people that are in intensive care now. Yeah, our volumes have increased since then. You were one of our first. Right. Um, and yet the load has still been manageable. So we've still been able to keep people awake. And so I just, the last shift I worked, I walked around and I saw multiple people awake, sitting in chairs, vent on the ventilator, all COVID positive. The writing notes, you actually were the one that um, I was so worried about your ability to communicate. You seemed really frustrated not to be able to communicate with us. It was very frustrating because I, my hand was shaky mm -hmm. and I couldn't write on the whiteboard. One of the nurses put the whole alphabet on top of the board and I was able to point, but even that was hard. My hands were shaky. And I know they make devices, even children's toys with the alphabet, which might be a good thing to do. It'd be easier for people to point to a big block. To yeah. out. Um, they wanted to try me to do it on my phone with texting something and then making it a voice. But I wasn't able to do that because it was, uh, my hands were too shaky. And so it was very, very frustrating. And some of my dreams were like that because you, when you're restrained and you have an ET tuba in, that was all my, a lot of my dreams were just the frustration of trying to get people's attention hmm. and trying them, trying to get them to come and see me. And um, you want people around you when, when you're in, when you're in that condition. And I uh, would squeeze their hands, which made me feel better. 
I mean, uh, personal touch, human touch is a very needed thing. You know, I, I noticed that when we were um, proning you and you were anxious, but you were so with it. I just, we were trying all these ways to help you stay awake and consciously intact, even while you were anxious and being proned. And it's scary because you were needing higher ventilator settings. You were isolated and yet you were so cognitively intact or seemed to be right you were following directions you understood at that point what was going on and we felt like you were safe but we wanted to make sure you were comfortable but we couldn't be in the room all the time but i noticed that you know as we're trying to get your light sedation to the right level if i rubbed your back i could see the tension just relax if someone gave you a hand you would squeeze it and hold on i mean even even in that kind of discomfort or even you didn't feel like you're totally cognitively there it was just a human instinct to need human contact mm -hmm. and that's something so difficult about this covid um situation is that we're not always able to do that and i worried those first few days when you came um a lot of us were just poking our heads at the window um right. trying to give you the thumbs up and say hey you're okay but you didn't have your cell phone with you so once you got your cell phone um, I created a Google account that you could text the front desk and say what you wanted. So we have a couple of texts from you saying albuterol, pump, um, IV pump is alarming. Like you told us a couple of things that you needed. Um, and then shortly after that, you need to be proned and you weren't able to use your cell phone. That was before, that was before when I was, before I was prone, right? Yeah. And that's why I was able to walk probably better because I was still in pretty good shape. Yeah. Uh, before I was prone, but after I was prone, I was pretty, pretty weak. And that was eight days. After eight days, you became that weak, and you started out as an extremely robust, athletic man. You were in such good shape. I was amazed how you were doing push-ups in the bed. At 30, I'm like, I don't know if I could be doing push-ups after being intubated for six days, but you really were. You were that strong, but you be quickly became that weak, which was extremely impressive to me. Well, I lost over 20 pounds in this whole hospitalization and gained back about nine now. And I could do lots of push-ups now and crunches and things like that. Um, my recovery has gone pretty well. There was one or two days where my oxygen level would drop precipitously when I, as soon as I got up to go to the bathroom, I'd be like 94, 90, 95 on oxygen while I have the cannula in the two liters, sometimes three liters. Then I'd get up and it would drop down to 82, 74. And uh, that happened for two days and we called our internist and I went to see her because I was worried that I was getting worse or I was getting it back again or I had some heart failure, uh, pulmonary embolism, I didn't even know. Mm -hmm. He saw me and we did a an x-ray and some blood work. And my x-ray actually looked a little bit better than the week before. So that was very reassuring. And we just contrib uh, thought that it was just the roller coaster of COVID getting better and then getting dipping down and getting better again. And since that time period, since that week, I've been steadily making progress. Can't wait to go, can't wait to go to sleep because every day when I wake up, I'm a little bit better. And that's, that's been the, the course I've been on. <clears throat> um, I still cough. I still have a cough, mostly when I'm talking. I don't know if it's from laryngospasm, laryngospasm, or from bronchospasm. I do use salbuterol, 
maybe once or twice a day. Sometimes that helps. Um, but I'm not sure if it's my vocal cords <clears throat> or um, bronchospasm. I don't really know. I had a CAT scan today at the hospital. I looked at it, it looked pretty good, but I'm, I'm not a radiologist. I, I really couldn't say what's going on there, but I'll find out in the next day or so what kind of lung damage I had. But you drove yourself. I drove myself. I, I drove myself. And on the uh, podcast, we've talked to other survivors of different treatments. And of course, the severity of, of illness has fluctuated so much. But some of these survivors and their, that got sick in their 40s and 50s can't drive now. Really? Wow. A lot of it's because of the cognitive impairments. They forget where they're going. They don't have the same response time. They're just not safe to drive anymore. And that's no, I don't any of that. In fact, Beverly, she thought when I was coming home, I'd be a mess, right? Well, all I had heard was that he was confused. Mm -hmm. um, and then when I'd speak to him, he was very focused on the bad dreams. And there was still some difficulty separating reality from <clears throat> these terrors that were haunting him. Um, and I really was shaking in my shoes that the hospital was sending me somebody with neurocognitive neuropsychiatric impairments that um, I was really terrified that, you know, this wasn't going to be my husband anymore. But it all, all that confusion cleared almost as soon as he got home. He spent the first night just telling me about the dreams and then they just started to fade away and he talked about them less the second night and less the third night and became oriented to the life that yeah. comes with being at home. Yeah. So, yeah, I went from total terror of what his neurocognitive neuropsychiatric status was going to be um, to being astounded that that the deficits were not there. I see a little bit of short-term memory. Um, Maybe that's but, normal. You know, <laughs> but then I can't say I didn't see a little bit before before yeah. COVID came into our lives. Um, but I mean, he was home one day and he was grilling me on what bills I had paid and knew the account numbers, and I was flabbergasted that um, his cognitive status was really good, yeah. Com especially compared to what I was anticipating. And I haven't had any recurrence of those dreams, none at all. They're, they're in the past. I can remember a lot of them, I think maybe 14 or 15 of them. So I know some of them had to occur while I was in the prone position probably, or maybe before that. There was a whole number of them and. Uh, and I could recall most of them, but nothing really, really terrorizing, just uh, uncomfortable. uncomfortable. So you don't feel traumatized by them? You have no, no, not at all. PTSD. No. And just an, just an experience I had, that's all. Yeah. We were so excited for you to go home, in part because we knew it would help expedite your recovery. I just wondered, I just had the suspicion that once you were home, that that alone would help your delirium and your cognitive function. Yeah, it did. When I came home, I milked it a little bit with Beverly. I made a few things that I could have done. <laughs> but uh, she uh, 
snap the whip and uh, I'm doing a lot, every, almost everything by myself. <laughs> almost. You know, he could do 25 push-ups and 50 crunches, but he still couldn't open the dishwasher door. You know? <laughs> Amazing how that happens, right? <laughs> and Beverly, when, um, when I was talking to you one night, I think this is right before he, he had to be proned. Um, I explained that he was anxious, that, um, but yet cam negative, didn't seem to be delirious, but he didn't seem to be fully himself and explained why we were avoiding sedation. And you s said, thank you so much for having a neuroprotective protocol. As a neurologist, what did you mean by that? Well, I've always told my patients that for every day you spend in bed, it will take a week to recover from the physical and and psychological burden of of losing that time for activity and function and and um, maybe when I say neuroprotective, I was thinking neurocognitive, neuropsychiatric, but also neuromuscular because the body is a machine. Mm -hmm. If you stop moving. Um, the rust sets in. If you take a long car ride, your knees might stiffen. When you get up in the morning, you might have to stretch um, because the rust was setting in even the eight hours that you weren't weight bearing on your spine. So I've, coming from a neuromuscular clinic background, mobility is extremely important to all function. And then you can, on top of that, it, and the neurocognitive and neuropsychiatric debilitation caused by being intubated, unconscious, sedated, on neuro-nasty drugs. Um, yeah, when you told me that, I mean, when I was told he was intubated, I haven't done hospital medicine. I've been in ambulatory medicine since I finished fellowship, which is almost 40 years ago. But I, um, you know, Mike thought was, well, he's going to be unconscious and paralyzed. Um, that was the only way I knew. And I was just, just so ecstatic to hear that he was awake, that he was receiving physical therapy intervention on those first few days. And I was just applauding that your ICU wasn't keeping him in a coma and paralyzed. I, I was astounded that that happened and I talked to uh, other colleagues who are related to critical care or got drafted into critical care uh, when COVID hit and they were all astounded at what was being done in the ICU. Ken was in relative to what they were doing in Miami and Dallas and Hartford, Connecticut where we have friends and relatives who who were either practicing critical care or got drafted into critical care. And now that he's home, you're five weeks, six weeks later. Six weeks. What, six weeks. Beverly, what does it mean to you now in the context of normal life? Not just that he survived, but that he's home with you and functioning. What does that mean to you and your life? Well, um, I went through a period of, of a week where I had no idea if he was going to survive and then a week where I didn't think he was going to survive. 
uh, right up to the day that I was asked if I wanted to do not resuscitate order uh, over his bed. And I was anticipating, uh, he got worse from that point for another few days, and I was anticipating the pull the plug question. So I went from psychiatric depth of despair. You know, I had this extremely healthy, robust spouse of almost 50 years, and I'm going to say goodbye. And then, um, then it all turned around. And so, yeah, I feel like I've been on um, quite the seesaw ride, and it's just so amazing that not only did he survive and not only did he walk into the house because um, I fully expected he'd wind up in a rehab hospital um, but that uh, yesterday he was out on the golf course playing golf. I was in a cart though so it's kind of cheating. Yeah we're normally walkers. We right. normally walk 18 holes. We walk to the course. We walk all the course so yeah I, I'm just like um, over the moon that uh, not only did he turn around but he's achieved a <clears throat> level of rehabilitation that I could not have anticipated. Yeah I tell everybody that for me the journey wasn't terrible but for Beverly and the people who love me they're the ones who really suffered and they're the ones who have had the burden of, of my illness I didn't know what was going on and in fact during my when I had my birthday Monday I told people that this is my second birthday or my rebirthday because I'm not many people get the chance to come back and live again and I'm so grateful and I can't thank you guys enough I mean just so grateful for the care I received I do have a, a thought to add to your um evaluation of how these COVID patients progress through this whole experience of ICU delirium in that he can't remember much of anything from the initial period of our viral infection. Um, he doesn't remember the day that I was running in circles trying to get a home oxygen unit. He doesn't remember. He was coughing so violently that that the house was shaking. He, and I can remember almost every day of those 12 days of, of us having all these nasty uh, illness symptoms. And so I really think COVID had attacked his brain, that all of that is as uh, unclear in his recall as is most of the ICU experience. He's not remembering even before he wound up. It's hypoxic and in an ICU. Um, but I can tell you that that whole 10 days was um, terrible insomnia, uh, anorexia, um, for him, nonstop coughing, uh, fever chills, body aches. I mean, it was a nasty flu-like illness, but it had far more effect on the brain than any illness. Well, I thought it would end in 13 days. I was hoping for the 13th day. Most people had it for two weeks. I said, okay, two weeks is up, and I should be better by now, but I wasn't. I Not probably had a massive dose, massive dose from somebody. I don't know who it was. <laughs> <laughs> no, you hit, you hit that side of kind storm, and you, you got it hard. And right. 
I think that's an important point for the critical care world is um, with influenza, with a lot of these, a lot of the septic kind of patients, they come in pretty promptly after getting sick in maybe a few days to a week. You had already gone through 13 days of poor nutrition, decrease in activity, neurotoxicity. And so um, it is even more important not to exacerbate all of that, to implement these things that we know to try to keep them active and awake and protect their body and brain that are already so deconditioned from this prolonged illness that they've suffered at home that's been happening far before us. And I think some of the, there's so much fear with COVID and very, very reasonably so. You were so sick, Ken, that you were that patient that everyone's calling in on their off shifts asking if the question was, how is room 45? But it was more, but the real question is, is he still alive? That's what everyone really cared about and wanted to know. Is he still with us? Is there still a chance? Because we were working so hard to keep you alive. And so these outcomes were not because you didn't get sick, because you weren't critically ill. And so the fear is, you know, people say, but my patients are really sick. So we have to sedate them the second they're intubated. But Beverly makes such a good point that these are people that are so sick, it's even more important to protect their brains and bodies while we can. So everyone's course is different, but because Ken came to a, a unit that kept him awake and walking for six days, still awake for another two days while prone, and then sedated for six days because of absolute necessity, he was able to wake up again, get back on his feet, and five, six weeks later be shooting a round of golf at 70 years old. Exactly. <laughs> so I, I can't say how grateful I am as many times. I'm just astounded that you people <clears throat> help me like that. So grateful. Well, you and all of our patients are worth the fight, and I'm so glad you're getting your life back, and I'm sure you'll be right back to walking your full... 18 holes. 18 holes. I can't even talk yeah, about hopefully, it. Hopefully by the end of the summer or... Maybe sooner. I don't know. Well, I'm so glad you have such a good wife to take care of you, a neurologist on hand all the time. <laughs> no, I, I have the best wife in the world. She's great. But I will, great. will say that um, he oxygenates better when he's mobile. And um, when the therapist first came, it was kind of like he was a, an orthopedic patient let's get your strength and he was very deconditioned so that was important and it was like he was a stroke patient let's work on your coordination and balance but it wasn't aerobic and he'd do this hour of strength balance and then he'd be exhausted and i'd say he'd want something a glass of juice i said get up move analectasis isn't going to get better if you're not moving and it took a while not only of me being a nag at him but to start nagging the therapist to push him to do aerobic and once he started to, to do more aerobic and be more mobile that's when his covid curve stopped undulating and started to 94 to go um to, uh progressively upward so mobilization not only was critical to his survival, but I think it's been critical to his recovery. 
Right, and we find ARDS patients have a high rate of readmission to the ICU, usually because they're so deconditioned that they leave the ICU and then they don't keep working on their mobility, they don't don't get stronger, then they can't clear the secretions, they have repeat of pneumonia or different, you know, they still have fully catheters or different things because they're still hospitalized. They have a really high readmission rate. Yeah, I do not see kin having to come back to us anytime no, soon at this point. I'm not going back. <laughs> you guys, but I don't want to see you again in the hospital. It's okay. I'll see you at the grocery store, but not at our unit. But yeah. you're doing your part, and we're so excited and so proud of you. And it's just a wonderful validation to the unique and bizarre approach that we take to critically ill patients that I hope will be standard. And thanks for sharing your experiences um, that help us understand the bigger bigger picture of why we do what we do. Well, please give everybody my best and tell them how well I'm doing. I appreciate that. I will. And you know what? I'm going to have them listen to this so they can hear it from you. You tell it better than I can. Thank you. (laughs) Thanks so much, guys. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Keep moving on. See ya. If you want to join in on the conversation, leave a voicemail at 801-784-0472 or reach out to me on Twitter. Schedule a consultation for your ICU, as well as find supportive resources such as the free ebook, case studies, episode citations, and transcripts. Please check out the website www.daytonicuconsulting.com.